0: we are so thankful thankful that we have the opportunity to be together to um i'm so thankful that sue lutz had um had started this and and we are experiencing the fruits of all of this and every time i come on wednesday i'm like come on lord amazing amazing again i thank you for these gifted women that come up and teach They make a huge sacrifice. Um, They spend many hours, Lord, and they wrestle, wrestle with themselves, wrestle with you um, in order to bring us uh, a delight, a feast. And so, Jesus, I just pray for Bethann that she would feel the spirit of the living God upon her to preach good news to us. And I thank you, Lord, for the hard work. And I pray for uh, the fruit that's going to come for all of us as we uh, go back to our classes. Um, your name be praised, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, Amen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see what we can for here. Okay, I'm not really good at this. Kind of, you know what? Let me go. Let's try it up here. The problem is, is that it. Can you say hello? Hello. Can people hear?
1: I don't. I don't think you would need. I don't think I need a mic anyway. I think you could hear me even if it didn't work. I don't. Thanks for mentioning that, Sarah. That's what I needed right now for the camera. Can I put this in here? Okay. So before I begin, there's just a few things I want to say. Um, the first thing I want to do is I want to thank my small group. They really carried me to this point today with their prayers. And I am just so thankful that the Lord brought us together this year. So. you're going to make me cry. So I'm not looking at you for the rest of the time, Ellen. Um, Also, the Lord used a lot of music to really calm and speak to my heart these past few months. So I just um, wrote the teacher and me couldn't help myself. There are songs that really resonated with me as I sat in this chapter um, on the board. And there's a QR code to the playlist if that makes you happy. Um, lastly, I want to say that I was born and raised in New Jersey. And as such, I talk very fast, especially when I'm passionate about something. So if I need to slow down, you feel free to yell at me. I, that will not offend me because I'm from Jersey. Um, okay. So today we are digging into 1 Samuel 25, where we will see a new side of David and be introduced to some new players in his story. Am I hearing that echo or are you? You're hearing that echo? I'm echoing. Okay.
0: I didn't know if that was just...
1: Yeah, it feels like a vibration. Hello. I don't hear an echo. Is that better? Okay. Thank. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I wouldn't have been able to do that. So a word that kept coming back to me as I was meditating on this chapter was audacity. The Oxford Dictionary defines audacity as the willingness to take bold risks. And what I also realized as I spent time sitting in this chapter is that what that looks like in today's society and what it looks like to God are not necessarily the same thing. We live in a society all about the hustle and you doing you and following your happy. And while I'm certainly not saying those things are all bad, that's not what the Bible points us to. So once I have set up our story, we will look at this idea of audacity in a life guided by and centered on Christ. So as the chapter opens, we learn of Samuel's death. The chapter begins, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. That's it. Two sentences. He didn't even get the whole verse. It could even be overlooked as we move into the drama of the rest of the chapter. This man was responsible for bringing both Saul and David to power, and we might have expected more here. But as Mary Evans writes, even kings were only men among men. The fact that only one verse is taken to describe Samuel's death and any attached ceremonial is probably making the same point. God's purposes move on. Indeed, we're reminded that Samuel, regardless of his role in what had come previously, is just a man, as are the other characters in our story today. However, God's story continues. His purposes move on. And as we will see today, God raises up others to do his will, and his will will always prevail. Chapter 25 continues, and there was a man in one whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. The fact that we learn of Nabal's wealth before we even learn his name, which we will get back to in a second, tells us everything we need to know about this man. Who he is is based entirely on what he has. In his wealth and belongings, And the status those things award him, Nabal finds his confidence, security, and identity. And so we know right from the first two verses that Nabal is doomed. And as if we needed further proof, now we have his name, Nabal, fool. In Psalm 14 and Isaiah 32, we learn that a Nabal is a spiritual, moral, and social disaster. When I first read what Nabal's name meant, I spent entirely too much time imagining the birth of this child. A woman who just experienced immense pain and exhaustion, peering into her newborn's eyes and declaring that the perfect way to describe this bundle of joy was as a spiritual, moral, and social disaster. And then I learned that this was probably just a nickname which brought me temporary relief until I realized there's potential that he knew and allowed people to call him a fool. Either way, God's point is made. Putting your trust and faith in anything other than the Lord is always a foolish endeavor and it will always end in disaster. Let's juxtapose this with the description of his wife, Abigail. Discerning here is the same word to express intelligence. In fact, it is the same word that was used to describe David in chapter 18. So this one verse shows the dichotomy between Abigail and her husband. Abigail is no fool. And it also establishes a connection between Abigail and David that will strengthen over the course of this chapter. David is back in the wilderness and hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep. The Calebites were an esteemed clan and sheep shearing was traditionally celebrated by feasting with more than enough to spare. So when David hears this, he sends 10 men to go to Nabal and do three things. The first is to bless Nabal and his servants with long life and good health. Spoiler alert, Nabal gets neither. The second is to remind Nabal of the history between his men and David's men. David says in verse seven, Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. And the third is to request compensation, kindness for kindness. Notice the language in verse eight. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. In ancient Israel, both giver and receiver would take it for granted that visitors would be offered at least some kind of sustenance. In such a large estate, there would have been enough to include David and his men and their families without a problem. David's not being picky. He's asking for whatever's left around. He refers to himself as Nabal's son. A peaceful greeting that shows deference to Nabal. David could have and would have been justified to killed some of Nabal's animals for food that he and his men needed to survive, but he didn't. 600 trained men would have had no trouble overcoming Nabal's farmhands and could have demanded compensation, but they didn't. This was by all means a peaceful and legitimate request. David clearly thought he was in good standing with Nabal, just as he had thought he was. With Saul, and this is where we start to see the parallels between Nabal and Saul. Every time I say they sound like a boy band, and I can't get that out of my head. And we're meant to draw this comparison between the two, not the boy band thing. Let's look at how Nabal responds to this request in verse eleven. Nabal says, "Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where?" Woo, I, ooh, that really echoed. (laughs) I or my, Lisa. I'm going to mess it all up. Okay, okay. I or my is used seven times in this single sentence. We have seen this self-centeredness before. In fact, we've seen it many times during our study this year in Saul. In both Nabal and Saul, we see men reject the Lord and put their confidence in themselves, in their power, in their money, in their flesh, and in this world. And sadly, we're going to see David toe that line today. Both Nabal and Saul are powerful, wealthy, and benefited from David, yet acted hostily towards him. These similarities will continue as the chapter does. Both had female family members who helped David and also married David. Both had their lives spared by David, and both eventually die under God's judgment. In both these men, we are cautioned by the effects of putting our confidence in ourselves rather than the Lord. The effects of being a fool. Apart from God, we are all Nabal and Saul, and God's judgment is always where that will lead. We're going to leave Nabal for a moment and look at David's response. As soon as he hears the report, David commands his men to strap on their swords. David did all the right things. He blessed Nabal He made a justifiable request, bless you, and he was rejected. We're gonna jump down to verse 21 now. So I apologize to those of you who are sequential learners that this is going to bother. I promise I'm gonna go back. Because here we see David replace his three-part request of Nabal with essentially a three-part temper tantrum. Verse 21, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness and he has returned to me evil for good. He goes on to say in verse 22, God, do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So to recap, take up your swords because Nabal's being mean to me and I'm offended and I'm going to do something about it. What happened to the David from the first 24 chapters of 1 Samuel? The David who said in Psalm 59, 1, deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Or Psalm 56, 11, in God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Or Psalm 54, 5, God will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Or Psalm 57, 3, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Or two weeks ago, when Don told us that in chapter 23, David asked the Lord four times what he should do in a single situation. Or last week, with the hypertrophy and muscle memory David had developed for moments like these. I just sounded so smart. Thank you, Helen. Where is that David? He sounds like Nabal. He sounds like Saul. And unfortunately he sounds like me. For those of you who heard me speak at women's retreat last year, I battle with anxiety, depression, and OCD. When my first daughter Madison was born, my postpartum anxiety and depression was so intense that it bordered on psychosis, And I was almost hospitalized. It was an extremely dark time filled with even darker thoughts. And it was an absolutely terrifying time in my life and next. When I became pregnant with Charlotte, I armed myself. This was not going to happen again. I wasn't going to let it. I couldn't live through it again. When she was born, I had my placenta made into pills. Yeah, you heard that right. (laughs) That I took as I drank bone broth that made me gag every morning for breakfast. I filled my prescriptions before I even went into labor. I exercised. I drank my water. I monitored my moods. Do you hear all those eyes? All the things of the world and in myself I put my confidence in? And you can probably guess what happened next. And I'll come back to it in a bit. But for now, my problem, David's problem, Saul and Nabal's problem, the human problem, is that at our core, we are mere men. And what we see in these verses is that David is a man. A man with selfish and self-righteous thoughts. A man whose passions and desires result in rash and irrational decisions. A man who forgets what God has, can, and will do. And we need to be reminded of this. Because at this point in 1 Samuel, it's tempting to put David on a pedestal. To be in awe of the ways in which he emulates God and submits to his will. And while David certainly displays king and Christ-like qualities, he is just as in need of a king that this earth cannot supply as we are. Our own strength will never save us. Thankfully, God met David in his own foolishness and reminded him of the solution to his problem. Let's jump back up to verse 14 because I promised you. Here, we see Abigail get approached by one of Nabal's men. The man explains the situation to her and says, therefore know this and consider what you should do because Nabal is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Abigail's wisdom has clearly already been established and is known, but for Nabal's men to come to her, the wife, in this time was shocking. And so is Abigail's response. Verse 18, Abigail made haste, and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. First of all, Abigail did not hesitate. She made haste. She didn't think about the consequences. She put herself in a very dangerous position. In the following verses, we learn that Abigail went behind and against her husband, took the blame, thus making herself a target, gave away part of the family fortune and speaks prophetically to David. Any one of those alone would be cause for serious consequence. This was scandalous. Robert Bergen writes, had she not been willing to violate the societal expectations placed on her, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive at daybreak. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Abigail stands as a challenge and an encouragement to intelligent women and men to use their gifts and to share their insights that God gives them. Abigail did not allow her own difficult home situation to prevent her from developing gifts. Indeed, Abigail's mind and gifts are stifled in her present situation. However, this does not stop her from faithfully putting her trust in the Lord. She humbly submits to the will of the Lord with full confidence that he alone is sovereign. God uses the unlikely, a woman and the wife of a fool no less, to speak truth and wisdom to David. In fact, what we will see is that Abigail's example of trust and faithfulness to the Lord leads David to remembering his. Remember about 15 minutes ago when I told you we'd be talking about audacity? I'm finally getting there. Abigail had the audacity to trust that her allegiance to the Lord takes precedence over her allegiance to everything else. Her husband, the expectations placed on her as a woman, her own desires and plans. We live in a world that tells us we should put ourselves first, to be bold and advocating for what we want, to be relentless in the pursuit of our own happiness. That's not the Lord's narrative. The Lord asks us to be bold enough to trust in his plan and submit to his will. Abigail also had the audacity to trust in acting on that allegiance without fear of retribution, that God would remember and protect her. Only a woman secure in her God could have taken such bold risks. Where is God calling you to be bold enough to trust him? To be bold enough to declare your allegiance to him above all else. In your career, with your children, your spouse, your friends, your plans. Now let's look at the audacity in Abigail's words. Notice that the first thing Abigail does when she reaches David is to get down from the donkey fall before David on her face and bow to the ground. She makes herself vulnerable to him physically, which allows him to have ears that can listen to what she's about to say. Now that Abigail has literally thrown herself at David's feet, she gives the longest speech given by a woman in the Old Testament. She intercedes on behalf of her husband and takes the blame. Verse 24, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She tells David that she knew her husband was a fool And as such, she should have watched him more carefully. I love the the imagery and symbolism here and how we are led to the cross. Her posture is one of vulnerability and her attitude is one of guilt she shouldn't have. As readers who know where this story leads, it lifts our hearts and gazes upward. It shows us this is the kind of audacity a life centered on Christ produces, not loud and proud but gentle and humble. She then continues on to reveal David's destiny as king quite prophetically. Indeed, she refers to David as my Lord 14 times in these seven verses. While the use of the word Lord here translates to my husband and could foreshadow what happens at the end of the chapter, I think her constant references to God as the Lord and David as my Lord is meant to remind him of the connection between him and the true Lord. And this is where Abigail uses soft and gentle language to boldly challenge David. You're the chosen one, David. You're gonna be king. You need to do better. Abigail says in verse 26, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, reminding him, David, the Lord will fight your battles just as he has always done. She goes on in verse 29, and the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. This intentional reference to a sling would remind David of Goliath. Remember that enemy, David? He was much more imposing and important than Nabal and you didn't take that into your own hands. In fact, you declared that the Lord would deliver you from the hands of that Philistine. You trusted that the Lord would reward your faithfulness. Abigail says in verse 31, when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord. She's telling David to keep his eyes on the prize and not let his anger distract him. You're going to be king of Israel, David. You don't need to worry about this fool. She's boldly but lovingly asking him, what kind of ruler will you be? What will you spend your time and energy on? Will you be like Saul and Nabal and be guided by your own emotions and desires? Or will you live up to being God's chosen king and allow him to be in control? Abigail's wisdom here extends even beyond David's kingship. Paul's charge in Romans 12:19 reads, "'Beloved, never avenge yourselves, "'but leave it to the wrath of God, "'for it is written, vengeance is mine, "'I will repay,' says the Lord." Mary Evans hypothesizes in her commentary that this instruction from Paul may have resulted from Paul's meditation on Abigail's story. She's like the OG sister in Christ. However, it wasn't Abigail that restrained David. It wasn't Abigail that kept him from murderous revenge and prepared him both mentally and physically for the throne. It was the Lord using Abigail as a vessel, to deliver David from his amnesia. Abigail had the audacity to speak truth and to allow herself to be used to fulfill God's purpose. She took a bold risk to lovingly remind David of the God we serve. When Charlotte was six to eight weeks old, the darkness descended. I will spare you the details of how bad it got, but it was bad. And the fact that I thought I could outrun it made my failure even more acute. I also want to say that I am more than willing to share my story or listen to others if that is something that someone's interested in. Suffice it to say, while my solutions helped temporarily, the armor I had created for myself set me up for a spectacular fall. However, in his grace, God sent me an Abigail, a Jonathan. Well, what he actually sent me was a Donna, who's my therapist. And the Lord used her to speak truth into my heart. One afternoon, she was leading me through a visualization exercise, which if you know me, would already have had me rolling my eyes, where I was supposed to be seeing my anxieties as balloons I was releasing into the air. And in a shocking turn of events, because I am a 2A fault rule follower, I felt God leading me elsewhere into his own vision, the likes of which I had never had before or since and probably wouldn't believe if somebody else told me about I pictured myself so vividly dressed for a party and holding a stack of presents. I was broken, battered, had meager offerings, but I showed up. This in itself would have been a miracle because at this point in our lives, I barely left the house. I had, and still do to a lesser extent, the complete opposite of FOMO. I have faux by, the fear of being included. Anyway, I knocked on a door to a house. And Jesus answered, now, this was not a medication-induced hallucination. This was the Lord saving me from myself, because in those packages, my fears, my worries, my shame and self-hatred, my own solutions that had failed me, and all he wanted was for me to lay them down at his feet. He reminded me that he saw me giving those up to him as a gift. What a God we serve. All I had to do was put him back in his rightful place in my life. I'm not in control, and look what happens when I am. <laughs> Confidence in myself in this world will always lead to failure. And this is what Abigail's words lead David to conclude as well. God used Donna to bring me back to him. Whether she knew or wanted that, I have no idea. And he used Abigail to do the same for David. But Abigail had to have the audacity to trust in where the Lord was leading. Where is God asking you to have the audacity to speak truth and life into someone like Abigail did? Or, much more difficult, where is God asking you to be audacious enough to listen and receive truth like David? David has his third three-part speech next, and we see a return to the David we know. He first blesses the Lord for sending Abigail. He then praises Abigail for allowing herself to be used by God. And he acknowledges that he was about to make a grave error and the Lord saved him from himself. But for the grace of God, he could have so easily been like Saul in chapter 21, who now has the blood of the entire city of Nob on his hands. David has the audacity to relinquish control and change his course. He didn't try to save face in front of the 400 men he just riled up that have swords. He didn't allow his anger to fuel his justifications. He just let go. Rebecca Pippert writes, one of the most dangerous elements of anger is the feeling of being entirely justified in expressing outrageous behavior. The remedy for anger is meekness. To be meek in the biblical sense of the term is to be anything but weak. The meaning of meekness is closer to the image of a powerful stallion surging with energy, pulsating with vitality, but tamed. A majestic creature, that has learned to obey its master's command through a small tug on the reins. In a world where we are told that being bold means standing up to all the Goliaths, we forget that for God, sometimes being bold means standing down. Dale Ralph Davis writes, there was no question in David's mind that Abigail had brought him God's word. The ability to hear God speaking and to listen to advice, even when it comes from unexpected sources, is a further sign of good leadership potential. Abigail's interaction with David allows us to look towards his inevitable God-ordained kingship with hope because we believe that he remembers that while he might become a king, he will never be the true king. He put the Lord back in his rightful place. David answers Abigail's questions about the kind of king he wants to be, a king who's willing to listen and learn from his seeks and allow God to lead. Who has the audacity to change course when he has forgotten himself and gone off track. Where is God asking you to be bold enough to change course, to let him lead? In what areas of your life have you gone off track and need to stand down? We know the full extent of the impact Abigail's words had on David when David hears of Nabal's death in verse 39. He doesn't exult. Instead, he thanks God for being the ultimate judge and for preventing him from wrongdoing. Because he easily could have been Nabal if not for God sending Abigail to intercede. He could have had the number of his men or his past successes allow him to have a false sense of security in himself. But we have seen the course correction. And this is the David we need to see again for what's gonna take place in chapter 26. Because let there be no mistake about the dangers of staying off track. When Abigail returns home to tell Nabal what happened, she can't, he's too drunk. And he is feasting like a king. Interesting, notice how he doesn't even miss those hundreds of items that were taken by Abigail, reminding us of how easily he could have spared them to begin with. And when Abigail does tell him the next morning, his heart dies within him. It is commonly accepted that Nabal had a stroke that resulted in a coma. However, verse 38 leaves no ambiguity. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. While the drinking and the stroke and the coma certainly impacted Nabal's health, Nabal's death was the direct result of God's divine judgment. This serves as a reminder to David and to us that God fights our battles. God serves justice. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. We do not know more or better than God, and it is not our place to take his place. We need to surrender to the Lord and allow him to do his work in his time and in his way. And when we do that, We allow our hearts to be free from the bondages of anger and resentment and fear. We allow ourselves to, as Psalm 4610 instructs, be still and know that he is God and to trust that all things work according to his plan. The chapter begins with the death of Samuel and God's reminder that he is in control and his story will be told. And it ends the same way. Sisters, we are called to rest in that, to find courage and strength in that. And for that knowledge to lead us to live big, bold, audacious lives for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are in control and that your purposes prevail. I thank you for the ways in which you remind us of your kingship and correct our course when we inevitably fall off track. I thank you for the people you put in our lives who are willing to speak truth. I pray that we are women who are audacious enough to follow where you lead to speak truth to others, to be willing to hear truth when it is needed, and to live bold lives for you. Amen.